0: Back. What episode are we on now? I've lost count. Is this six? Uh,
1: this would be six, right? Number six, six. I'm looking. Six yeah, we're looking around. Make sure we get this right. We right. don't want to. We don't want to mess up our our big debut here.
0: <laughs> well, we'd like to welcome Douglas Edward Ullman to the stage. See, you thought I forgot your middle name. <laughs> it's up here. Uh, so interesting fact. First of all, welcome to the Summits Podcast. Thank you for making time out of your busy schedule for this. Thanks for having me. Um, little known fact: We met 20 years ago last month. I think you were like five and I was 10. But that's <laughs> when we—that's when we first met each other down in Austin, Texas. That's uh, that kind of dates us a little bit.
2: 20 years! Wow, that's amazing. Actually, yeah, that is. is
0: we look and the now, same. <laughs> and
2: now we live a lot closer.
0: This is true. This is true. So what we'd like to kind of start with here is educate our listeners and viewers on on who Doug Ullman is uh, in the early years,
2: the young pup. Wow. Or younger pup. Early years. <laughs> you, you know, that that's a good question. Um, so I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up between Baltimore and Washington um, in a family that, you know, amazing parents and older brother and you know, just a typical middle class sort of upbringing, uh, playing sports and going to school and um, watching my parents sort of be real involved in the community as volunteers, predominantly, whether it be the schools or the library or organizations they care about. Um, but I, I sort of look back on it as real traditional upbringing that was predominantly focused on sports, to be honest, Right, no. playing soccer and basketball and whatever else was sort of in
1: season. Did, did sports keep you out of trouble or were you still a troublemaker growing up?
2: <laughs> That's a great one. Um, sports uh, maybe caused some trouble in some ways. No, <laughs> I, I, see that. I, I, uh, I was lucky to be surrounded by great teammates and coaches and, um, you know, and, and I always say this, but I, I played soccer and and predominantly, but uh, my parents learned soccer when I learned soccer because they didn't really know the game. And so, there was like no pressure, you know, sort of like, Hey, let's just learn this, this game. And, um, but yeah, some of the best most lasting friendships to this day are teammates from growing up, which is pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. So I know soccer as we'll get into has been a big part of your life. Um, I think we got a, a photo here uh, showing you practicing your early skills. And I, I just, I have a question though, about the photo itself. Um, pop that pull up, it up here for real, you quick. Here real quick. there's two items of note with this photo number one is the uh
2: the quote on there yeah i mean this is a quote that i heard hundreds of times over the years uh, from my high school soccer coach uh, bill stara and when you're in high school, you hear it, it goes one in, in one ear, out the other, and you don't really appreciate it. Um, but the the premise of the quote is that in soccer, there's no timeouts, right? So you're constantly moving, the ball's constantly moving, and you have to find time to walk to get your rest so that you're ready when the ball's there or you're running, sprinting, whatever. And so it makes total sense. But, you know, again, you don't appreciate it at, at the time when you're 15, 16, 17 years old. But later in life, I've come to really appreciate sort of the the more significant meaning behind it. Yeah. yeah. And
0: I see you're rocking the same haircut as you did back then.
2: <laughs> it comes and goes. Not you know. that
1: I should make any comments about hairstyles. Once you pick a winner, you just stick with it. I mean, <laughs> there, have been
2: some, there have been some in-between stages, but, you know, you you sort of revert back uh, as you get older. <laughs> did you uh, ever go with the, like, the Euro soccer mullet? So I, I had
0: uh, That means
2: a few years after that picture was taken, I, I didn't have a mullet, but I, I did have a, sort of a mop. I mean I had long curly fro and uh it just got a little got a little out of control for a while, but uh, that's why I had to revert back.
0: <laughs> I, I wanna see one of those photos. <laughs> I can I can dig one. I can okay. try to do it. Yeah, one. yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. So high school soccer player um, and then on up into what led to the the next step for you. If you want to expand a little bit on your, uh, your collegiate career.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I'll never forget this. My parents, we were talking about like where I should go to school and, and obviously I wanted to play soccer and, you know, there were some good options. There were lots of options, but, but you know, it was hard to figure out what to do. And, I'll never forget my parents saying, you know, you should go to the place where if you never play soccer again, you're going to be happy. And at the time, again, at 17, I was like, I don't really understand what they mean. Um, and so I basically ended up going to the best academic school I could go to. Um, and soccer helped get me there, which, you know, was fortunate. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, a year later, right before my sophomore year, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I looked back on that conversation and said of all the places I could have been I probably was in the best possible place uh you know sort of from the university standpoint and surrounded by again great friends and teammates and coaches and um but but at 17 I didn't really understand what my parents meant and so I I sort of owe them a ton of gratitude for for helping uh channel my decision in that way
0: yeah, so that's a great segue with, you know, May being Melanoma and Skin Cancer Awareness Month, and then I believe June is Sarcoma and Bone Cancer Awareness Month, um, kind of a natural tie-in. Uh, so I guess the, the question is, Doug Olman, what is your cancer story?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a good reminder. I can celebrate during multiple months, I guess. <laughs> Lucky me. Um, you know, I was I was diagnosed in August of 1996 with a very rare type of sarcoma called chondrosarcoma. And it was really a fluke. I mean, I, I didn't have any symptoms, uh, was really fit and healthy and getting ready to go back uh, to play my sophomore season of uh, soccer in college and ended up in the emergency room through a series of events that, again, were unrelated. Um, And lo and behold, in the emergency room, they said, let's do a chest x-ray just to be sure you're okay. And it was sort of an asthmatic event that led me to the emergency room. And they did the chest x-ray and actually at the time said it looked fine. And the next day, another doctor looked at it and said, no, you've got to have a CT scan immediately. And he thought there was something wrong with my heart. And it turned out that there was a tumor growing behind uh, my heart in, in my rib cage and uh so on the one hand i was really fortunate to to find it at that point on the other hand there was just a huge psychological disconnect because i was so fit and yet they were telling me oh you're you have cancer and so it just didn't make sense and at 19 a lot of stuff like this doesn't make sense um but i remember just being confused and frustrated and sort of trying to figure it all out
1: yeah. yeah, our our episode one guest had a similar situation, played football and uh, went to the doctor's office for a totally unrelated type symptom that led to him finding out that he had cancer at that time. So it's amazing how some of these things can go unchecked and then just hit you.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, it, it was so surprising to the doctors that they actually told me in August, they said, look, we know how important soccer is. Why don't you go back and play this season and then come back in December at winter break, and we'll wow. have the tumor removed. And you know, when you first hear that, you're like, "Oh, that sounds like a great, great thing." And then I thought to myself, "How could I possibly like know that there's this tumor inside me and like just go about my normal day and pretend that, that it wasn't there?" So I decided to to, to not do that. But uh, but I remember they they were like, "Oh, don't worry about it." And I thought. You would regret that for the rest of your life if for some reason it, it grew or spread or, you know, something happened during that interim period. Um, but so, again, I, I do feel very fortunate that it was caught early, um, you know, but at the time I didn't feel so fortunate. Yeah. And then did <laughs> yeah. you
0: stay enrolled in school and ha- do all your treatments and any, any surgery there on site versus coming back to the Baltimore area?
2: I actually I was diagnosed in Baltimore okay. and did all of it there. Um, but then I ended up going back to school. I was really lucky. Uh, Southwest airlines had just started flying between Baltimore and Providence, Rhode Island. And my freshman year, I would take the train, which was like an eight hour train ride. It was fine. It was, it was great. Pre wifi. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Actually, it's funny you say, I used to take the overnight train. I used to sleep the whole time or try to sleep the whole time. Yeah. Um, but when Southwest started flying, it was a 40-minute flight, and it was like $49. And so I could get back and forth a lot easier, um, yeah. which, was, which was really nice. And um, so I was able to stay in school, and that was another thing that my parents really pushed. They were like, look, you can stay home this fall, but all your friends are going to be going back to school. There won't be anybody around here, and you're going to be really lonely and they said, go back to school. And who cares what your grades are? Who cares? Like at least you'll be around your teammates and your friends. And they were right. I mean, it was a great, it was a great decision at, at the time. Yeah. Perfect.
0: I would I would agree. I mean, so did the grades suffer or did you keep those up?
2: I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I know I know I know I was very hard to be around for a while. Like my roommate, who's still one of my closest friends to this day. I don't know how he did it I mean I was like I went on this like health kick like I wouldn't eat anything that was unhealthy I didn't want to go anywhere where people were like smoking like I, I was like yeah. I was just like went into this like hunker down I was like listening to meditation tapes before meditation was cool and mainstream and you know and I don't know how he put it up with me uh, that that year but
1: uh, I don't remember
2: studying a whole lot uh, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> but uh, it turned out okay i i, I did have a, a nightmare once that i didn't graduate and i, I have found my diploma so i, I know that it happened
0: yeah I, I think
1: i think you're good i still I, have those nightmares it, so well, yeah <laughs> you
2: know
0: yeah <laughs> i am sure it was kind of an uh, I, I will say awkward is probably the best way to describe it you know your friends around you how how they should act and feel around you and then vice versa you're going through you know what you're dealing with and, and how you react to that we all know that Everyone tends to react a little bit differently based on their diagnosis and their situation, um, so I, I can imagine that was awkward. Is really the only word I can I can describe it with. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, everybody means well, and everybody's like wanting to help in any possible way, but people don't know what to do and don't know what to say, and um, you know, again, it's it's so foreign for people in college to think about um and you know i still have friends to this day who like their image of me is the guy who had cancer right the the kid who cancer in college and and again i don't fault people for for that at all um but i think people are just ill-equipped to handle it at, at that age um and so some people drift closer some people drift further and you sort of go through the the journey uh and and sort of Friendships and, and relationships evolve. I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, what? How long did that process take? And then,
2: when were you deemed clear? So, I was deemed clear of the sarcoma pre- pretty early. I mean, maybe f- six months after um, the diagnosis. It uh, was so rare and and slow growing that they felt like if it ever was to sort of come back, we would we would catch it again. And so it was pretty clear, like after a few months that then surgeries and stuff that there would be scans and and follow up. Um, But then I was diagnosed with melanoma. Uh, So in March of 1997 and then again in June of 97. So all within a year, really within 10 months. Um, And again, I was lucky because the melanomas most likely would never have been caught if I hadn't had sarcoma, if I hadn't been going to the doc, I mean, they were doing, I I had a colonoscopy. I had like everything done in the world, um, at that time. And so again, fortunate that they were being so thorough, um, with everything at, at, at the time at Johns Hopkins. And so, you know, very, very lucky.
0: Any setbacks to the soccer career at Brown, um, with the melanoma diagnosis at all?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I actually, March of 97, I was walking to soccer or I was getting ready to go to soccer practice. I was in my dorm room, um, spring practice when the doctor called and I'll never forget that. It was sort of a weird call out of the blue Um, and there were, there was a lot of setbacks. I mean, the, the biggest setbacks were really psychologically because over time it just, soccer just wasn't as important anymore. And the camaraderie and the, the team aspect was, but it was just hard to concentrate. It was hard to like put the same level of intensity um, into it that I had uh, up to that point. Yeah.
0: So how, how much more school did you have left or how many more years of school did you have left at that point?
2: Yeah, So so when I was diagnosed with melanoma in the spring of 97, I was finishing my sophomore year. So I had two more years. Um, and I still played and and stayed on the team, but it, but it wasn't, it just didn't, it wasn't the same, you know, it it didn't carry the same weight and intensity and, um, but I still loved it and and enjoyed the, the experience.
0: So your class of 99, is that right? Class of 99. 99. Okay. Uh, so 99 comes, it's May, it's graduation,
2: then what? Yeah. So, so during my, my time at Brown, I actually had started a nonprofit, uh, focused on young adults with cancer. And I had no idea what I was doing. Started in my dorm room, um, was totally naive other than, I knew there were other people out there that had been through a certain similar experience and I couldn't find those people. I couldn't connect with them. This was like the early days of the internet, so it wasn't as easy as it is today. Um, but, every time I would share my story, somebody else would say, oh, my sister was diagnosed in high school, or my cousin, or my... So I knew there was this community of people. And so I decided to start this organization and again, had no idea what I was doing. Um, But I had applied for a grant from an organization in New York called Echoing Green, and they fund social entrepreneurs. And so when I graduated, they actually provided me a, a grant that paid my salary uh, paid $30,000 a year to keep building the organization. So their whole goal was we're going to give people the salary so that they can go out and like have the runway to sort of go create something. And so, uh, that's what happened. And and so I was lucky. I actually moved back home, uh, and, and was running the organization, um, had had been doing it as a volunteer and then had this sort of stipend support for, uh, for the the year after graduation. Sure. So I,
0: I, Know the answer already to this, <laughs> but what was what was the real driver? What what really pushed you to say, you know what? Um, I, I want to do something about my situation beyond just you know surviving. Obviously, priority number one. But what what pushed you to to start something to to make a cause out of it?
2: You know, I, I, part of it was that I just had grown up in this family that was very involved in the community and and had sort of instilled this idea that if you saw a gap or a void or something that didn't exist that you should go after it you know, and and fill it um, if you had the capacity to do so. So I think some of it came from that and then some of it just came from like, probably just wanting to put my attention on something positive and just refocus and and stop worrying about my own situation or or dwelling on it. And there was such a sort of cathartic um, aspect that I didn't expect, but that came from sort of networking with other survivors and, and um, sort of focusing on their journeys and trying to help other people. Yeah, and it's another way to channel that competitiveness, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was fun. I didn't know what I was doing, so I was learning a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like to create things, so I didn't realize that maybe at the time, but it was it was fun to create something. Yeah, I, I concur
0: 100%. All right, so... Let's go forward from there. The next couple of years were uh, were interesting.
2: Yeah, so I um I, I had the chance to move to Austin, Texas in two thousand and one, early two thousand and one, um, to work at an organization that was then called the Lance Armstrong Foundation, and Lance and I had connected several years earlier by email, and had developed sort of an email you know uh, correspondence every few weeks over actually two years, three years. And then he asked if I would come down and and help the organization he had founded, um, at the time had three or four employees and was raising a bunch of money, but didn't know what to do with the money. wasn't sure how to program sort of to help as many people as possible. So for me, I was young and, you know, excited and it was an, awesome opportunity where I didn't have to focus on fundraising. I could focus on trying to figure out what to do with the money, um, to help people, which at the time was, was awesome. So, um, so I moved to Austin and and ended up staying there 14 years and ended up, uh, you know, living through the tremendous highs and tremendous lows of, of that journey. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. I learned a lot. Um, and as you might imagine, there were, there were some great days and there were some, uh, some some challenging days to be sure, but at the, the, the end of the day, and, and you referenced this earlier, the best part about it was meeting incredible people um, from all over the world who had a shared. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess Indianapolis is part of the world, so yeah. From all <laughs> over the world, he's got us there. Just kidding, but um, but truly, people that you know were bonded by a common you know passion or experience, and who wanted to do something great. And I think that's, that was inspiring. And and to this day, I mean, so many friendships that, that have lasted 10, 20 years, um, you know, were formed, which is pretty, pretty spectacular.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, I, I, there's a lot of things I don't remember. I mean, even as recent as last week, um, as you can attest to, yep. Uh, but I, I vividly i do remember meeting you and, and and another person down there that first the first time we went down to the ride for the roses back in uh in april of um i guess it was 01 as crazy as that sounds um that, that was a cool experience very cool yeah. um all right so y- you mentioned Indy. i i have to throw this out here you were still at live strong at the time uh but you uh, graced us with your presence at the an evening with heroes uh the heroes foundation's gala in in 2015 and you know you brought or came along with your and hooked us up with your good buddy Stu Scott which is probably one of my one of my all-time favorite gala photos here we'll pull up Um, you know he's had a relatively recent post um, on uh, Stu's anniversary of his passing here that um, was that was a good night i uh, again I appreciate you uh, making that connection but then also you know for coming up to the to the event itself and, and and sharing some words of wisdom with the with the folks there
2: that was awesome I'll never forget it i mean we've got some great photos the one that you have there on the screen and um yeah i i, I reminisce about that a lot actually it was, it was thanks for having me it was
0: Phenomenal. Uh, Heather in the background here said I could have used some powder on my forehead yeah, and nose at the yeah. time for that photo too, but yeah. well, you,
2: were, you were the star that night and you know you were you were shining, you were shining. <laughs> wow. <That's laughs>
1: not, yeah, wow, I'll, that's a good recovery. I owe you for that yeah.
0: one. <laughs> we'll have to tag that, that, that Heather's
1: back. not so nice as nice about phrasing it that way as no. you were. So hey, <laughs> you're shining, It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. a guest, Just a guest. <laughs> right?
0: So that was that was in 2015, and then and then not too long after that, uh, you, you made your way to the Midwest.
2: Yeah, so we we're, we relocated to Columbus, Ohio, which frankly was not part of our plan, but the opportunity to come to a community that had started something in in Pelotonia that was just phenomenal and had six, achieved such success in a very short period of time, and I had always been intrigued. I, I had actually come to Columbus for the first. time. Pelotonia event. And so I had seen it firsthand and, and I was sort of wondering like, how is this happening? How are they raising millions of dollars? How do they build this so quickly? And so I was curious about it. And when the opportunity came to learn more about it and, and learn about Columbus in general and the philanthropic environment and the generosity of the community, it was, um, it was an opportunity I couldn't, couldn't pass up.
0: Yeah. I remember hearing about the move and I was like, Holy crap. He, he left strong oh wait, he's only three hours away now, <laughs> but it's been great. it wasn't too long. Is. It wasn't too long after that though, that I started seeing these, the Ohio state university references. And I'm like, okay, this is, this Not is going cool. south quick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, the Midwest, I, I've never had any experience really living in the Midwest and, People are so kind, like the collaborative spirit and the welcoming nature. It's been awesome. It's been a great place to raise our kids. Uh, we obviously miss friends in Austin and, and family, but it's been a great, great uh, opportunity, not just within Pelotonia, which has been phenomenal, but also just beyond getting to meet some amazing people.
0: Yeah. Well, we appreciate the uh, kind Midwest words. Yeah. We, we seem to think so, too. We yeah. call it Hoosier Hospitality, uh, but you know, you're know, you not that far away. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's I like that.
0: I like that. So I, I guess I have I have a question for you then. When the the College Cup last week, did you happen to uh, to watch any of that and uh, and any 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 backing of the Indiana Hoosiers?
2: <laughs> so I did not watch uh, live. I saw some of the highlights. Okay. I saw some of the highlights. My um, so my college coach from brown actually coaches at clemson ah, okay, okay. clemson has been since he's been there i don't know I, I mean they've been like in the top five every year since he's been there but they have yet to win the national championship and so they lost i can't remember what round but they lost again this year where they were upset and so um so i was following that and then i ended up following a little bit of the college cup and um you know the cinderella story right i mean the, the championship right Correct. Yeah. I mean, you guys, you guys have had your wins, right? I mean, you we know, have, I know you're just, yeah. But, right.
0: Yeah. And from what I understand, and, and don't quote me on this, I believe I saw where we're returning either eight or nine of the 11 starters or something like that.
2: So, you know, it's so not going to Yeah. There's a lot of things I worry about at night. I'm not worried about them being good okay. again. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. No, uh, the reason, the reason I actually, it was so high on my radar was that, um, there's a journalist, a TV journalist here in Columbus. I, can't, I think he's a sports journalist, who um, is an alum of. Uh, wait, who won? Marshall. No. Yeah. Yes, Marshall. Yeah. Yeah, Marshall. Yeah, he's an alum of Marshall. And so he was posting incessantly, like leading up to the game <laughs> and after the game, and and his wife was telling him he couldn't buy more gear, and he was buying <laughs> more gear, and so he was like commentating the whole weekend or activities um, of the uh, of the cup.
0: Yeah, I don't. So you said you did not watch any of the final. I did not. Okay, I I did. I'm not. You know, I don't. I don't know soccer well enough to know all the strategy and whatnot. But I will say Marshall came out and played very aggressively, um, and I, I think that was certainly part of their plan. And it, you know, it it clearly it worked. Off. I think. Yeah. And I think again, I I could be misspeaking here, but I think one of Indiana's Achilles' heels was their was their defense. Phenomenal goalie but it looks like they struggled a little bit on the defensive side and it, and it showed a little bit in that game, but you know, it is what it does came down to a one goal and yeah. towards the last latter five minutes, I think, or no, did we go to overtime? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We didn't we to overtime. overtime. Yeah. Yep. As long as it didn't end on PKs. I, that's the yep. one thing I, I can't stand the <laughs> games that end on PKs. And as a soccer player, you probably hate
2: that too. Cause it just, to- I, my, my daughter's game ended yesterday on penalty kicks. <sighs> uh, so it was, it was really just an internal like scrimmage of sorts, but, um, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you see these seven, eight, nine-year-old kids. Like, I mean, it's, it's pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, how's the fam? Everybody's good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Congratulations you know, on 10, 10 years. 10 years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything's good. You know, my uh, – look, the pandemic has been – to watch it through the eyes of our kids has been sort of wild. I mean, kids are so resilient and – But yet that you think about like percentage wise, like my son who turns eight next month and our daughter, you know, like it's been almost a quarter of his life.
0: Yeah. You Uh, know,
2: like in a weird way, think about like how the percentage of time and but but the 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 silver lining. And again, I'm an optimist. I try to find silver linings. The main silver lining for our family is like it's been a year and a half of having dinner every night together and, you know, tucking the kids in every night. And as you know, with the work that we do, you're out a lot. There's a lot of events. There's a lot of fundraisers. There's a lot of things. And I love that. I mean, I love being out and, and meeting people and uh, being in the community. But for the last year, you know, I've been home. And and I never thought I would just sort of say this, but it's it's been incredible time with the, with the family.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. I, I would agree. Uh, and, and after 10 years, I mean, did Amy get in sort of like metal or anything special or it just, <laughs> no, you just get to spend more time with me over the next nine months. Yeah. I
2: mean, I mean, I, I, I think that she might take some trips on her own now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's been awesome. I mean, you know, I, I'm very lucky to have an incredible, uh, spouse and partner who's supportive and kids who are, um, awesome i mean one day my right before the pandemic i was leaving town i was driving to the airport and i was leaving the house in the morning and my daughter was having breakfast and she said to me she said dad i wish you didn't have to travel for for work today and i sort of was like feeling really sad and then she paused and then she said but the work you do is so important i want you to go and keep doing it And it was like it was like it made me feel great i mean if, if our kids grew up focused on where they can put their energy to help more people that would be The best, the best win of all.
0: Yeah, that would be awesome. Do you by chance have that on video? Do you?
2: I do not. I wish (laughs) I did. That would be classic. (laughs) I wish I did. Yeah, but I'll never forget that. Going to the airport, flying to Phoenix for a speech, and I was like thinking about it the whole time. So it's been, it's been, it's been, um, you know, just interesting to watch the kids and see how they've dealt with with everything. But complaints,
0: right? Uh, I I hear you. Um, What would you say? We've, I've asked this to a lot of different people um, who have had the experience that we've had what would you say to a a young individual who has received the same you know diagnosis um, either one that you have had what would you what would you tell them today what kind of resources would you offer to them
2: it's a good question I mean I think a couple of thoughts one I always tell people to try to Find things that they are in control of and and continue to do those things. There's so much you're not in control of when somebody tells you you've got cancer and you have to rely on doctors and nurses and all sorts of professionals. Um, but there are things, whether it's exercise or diet or, you know, connecting with friends, like there are things that are in your control that can hopefully give you some sense of normalcy and keep some sense of normalcy. So that's one thing. The other is um, let people help. I think it's a it's not human nature for for people for any of us to ask for help. And all the time, you know, I find myself even saying this, like, oh, let me know how I can help. Well, people typically don't call you back and say, hey, remember when you offered that? And so when people just show up at your door with food, or they or they show up and say, let's go for a walk or exercise or whatever it might be, like let them help because you probably need it and you probably wouldn't ask for it. Um, And it's okay to be vulnerable and to sort of accept other people's help and support, even though it might feel uh, unnatural. Um, And then obviously, from a medical standpoint, we always advise a second opinion. (laughs) And, And even if you've got the best doctors in the world, just get it confirmed, because the peace of mind you will have when you start your treatment, knowing that this is the right path. You'll never second guess it. You'll never look back and say, I wish I should have done this or that. So the best second opinions in my mind confirm the first opinion. You're not looking for somebody to tell you something different. You're looking right. for them to say, yeah. Oh, they're right. keep going. You know, yep. cause I think having confidence is important and, and especially as you go down the treatment path.
0: Sure. So we talk a lot about attitude and I know we've, we've talked about this before and there's been countless quotes and stories written on it. Um, it's, easy, it's an easy thing for us to say, right? But what what would you say to them about, about keeping a positive attitude or just attitude in general?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. I mean, you know, I used to tell people all the time that, you know, statistics mean nothing to the individual. So somebody tells you you have a 25% chance of survival. Somebody will look at that and go, well, that's terrible. Another person will look at that and go, oh, I'm going to be in the 25 you know, and, and, and it doesn't mean anything to the individual because it doesn't know who you are. It doesn't know if you're fit or what your attitude is or your support system or anything. And so if you can control your attitude and keep it positive, like, that's just another check in your column. You know, like, it's not going to hurt you at all. Right. And, you know, I think that goes for life in general, way beyond cancer. You know, it's like I, I, I was saying to somebody yesterday, I sort of joke with them. I'd rather be an optimist and be wrong than a pessimist and be Right. Yeah. I mean, to walk around, you know, all the time, like, being negative would be miserable. And especially when you're facing a, a cancer diagnosis. So um, I think there's a lot to be said for that, whether it whether it actually impacts your physical well-being. I, I think it probably does. But psychologically, you know, I, I don't see the downside. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't have days when you're upset and days when you're down and, you know, sort of emotional or, or, or feeling negative. But on the whole being optimistic about the path forward, the treatment plan, the, the medical team, your support system, um, putting all that in place and feeling confident and positive is, is really critical in my mind.
0: Yep. No, hundred percent agree with that one. All right. Well, parting words of wisdom for the, the audience of the summits podcast.
2: Well, first I th- thanks for the opportunity and, and thanks for what you do um, through the heroes foundation and beyond, you know, my parting words are just that, you know, we, we've all learned through the pandemic how hard it is to be isolated and how hard it is to be away from people and how we need desperately to be in community. And whether that's neighborhood, work community, educational community, sports community, whatever, organizational um, community. And I would just encourage people to, to, to get involved and do something to impact the world around them if we all do one or two things that are significant, the world will be a a much better place. And, uh, and hopefully we can bring people together in powerful ways to do things that no one can do on their own. And that's, that's really the goal of Pelotonia. None of us can cure cancer, but if we get thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people together, we can have a much bigger impact than any of us could have on our own.
0: Yep. Well said, I agree. Um, Well, we thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Um, sorry, it's via remote, but it's such as life these days. Um, and then on that note, just 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 know that first tee is wide open and there's a shrimp cocktail waiting. If you just get your ass
2: over here. I can't wait. I, listen, I will be there. And the reason I couldn't come today is because I've got to go to the driving range after this and practice. So I just figured, i okay. uh, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen, <laughs> if, Phil, if Phil can do it at 50, then. It's possible. I could possibly say and there's a chance. <laughs> You're saying there's a chance. Exactly. Exactly. I will
0: be there for sure. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Douglas. Thank you, sir. Thanks Appreciate for it time. so
1: much.